time for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, your designated driver and movie goer this time. Once again, opening up Doctor Who conversation here on our free speaking, big thinking show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you've been watching, reading or listening along to those ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who, we talk about it all on this show and we even throw in the odd laugh or two along the way. So come and step into our TARDIS in this 60th anniversary year, no less, here on Type 40. Welcome back. Hope you're you're seated or ready to take your seat again for the next in our Diamond Review series. Make yourself comfy. I know I intend to. I've forgotten the popcorn though. Maybe, maybe she's remembered it because I've got Charlotte. Have you brought the popcorn? <laughs> yeah, which one though? That's the choice of popcorn. What's what's your favourite flavour? Okay, it's so a choice between salted and sweet. Oh, see, I like sweet. You, you, yeah, I think I go for the sweet as well. I was categorically against salted until relatively recently, but I, I have become a convert because your tastes change when you get older. I think I tried salted popcorn 15, 20 years ago, hated it, tried it again recently, thought it was lovely. But given the choice, I go for sweet. I go for sweet as well. You don't need to drink as much. That used to always do my head in at the <laughs> cinema. Like, I'd guess if I got salted, I was like, I need needed something. And I didn't want to pay for a drink because I was tight. I like it. There's some sort of caramelised popcorn option now as well. All manner oh, yes, of, you can. Those are nice. Stuff. Like the little bags. Don't get ten ton of them because you can get very sick off them. But little bags of those is quite nice. <laughs> you can now customise popcorn and, and brew up your own flavour, no doubt. Just like Louise is doing in the TARDIS on our desktop this time. The, the Doctor Who movie tardis that changed quite a lot in between films didn't it but those black drapes and the white panel door there that russell t davis clearly admired so much that he brought yeah, it through copied, to the new yeah. series didn't he? you can mm. see a lot that's what i love about tardises in doctor in general like you can see that so many creators of tardises get a bit inspired by the one before and little things that they've taken and sort of made their own versions of which i think is just lovely take this bit that worked leave that bit that yeah. didn't completely get rid of that forget we even did it because it was awful that kind of yeah. thing <laughs> naming no names <laughs> pointing in no particular direction at all yeah i love the fact that it looks like here there's almost too many tubes going across the ceiling and things like that you get the impression it is a laboratory it's like some tardises look very comfy don't they and very lived in this looks like more yeah. like a working tardis yeah and although I suppose there are lots of things that looked high-tech in the 60s that have stayed part of, of culture now, Charlotte, and sort of have evolved, like the, the radio alarm clock has evolved into something else and tease maids evolved into something else. I think some of the tech that we see in Doctor Who's various console rooms was probably in common use in the 50s into the 60s, and they sort of jazzed it up a little bit like a Bunsen burner and, and things like that, just to make it that little bit more interesting. But I could stare at pictures of both versions of the movie's uh, console rooms forever. I never get fed up with that. It's just so, so different. Times change, but maybe they don't. So I was thinking about this as well before before we, uh, we came on for this one. Back then, in the mid-60s, by the time that this film came out that we're going to talk about this time, the general public had only had Doctor Who, any version of Doctor Who, in their lives for around three years. And then all of a sudden, there was not just one guy playing it, but uh, but two. And how that is kind of similar 
to where we are now because effectively now doctor who tv show it's got two leads isn't it we there's two productions ongoing that we're hearing about simultaneously and shooter gatwa and david Tennant, the 14th 15th doctor at the same time but way back then that would have been unheard of for actors to share roles wouldn't it be there they were though we got uh, got peter cushing on the big screen and william hartnell still on the on the small screen it must have been quite strange for for uh, children in particular hadn't it yeah and it must have been so strange to also have somebody like cushing who was such a well-known actor at that point who'd done all the hammer stuff who'd done really well-known movies to suddenly be the doctor even now i think we would we even say now don't we when we get the usual who's who's going to be the doctor when we get there. We all say, oh, it won't be a big movie person, don't we? But we got a, a genuine movie star, which I just always find, I find just amazing. I do look across at other universes now and see, I mean, for example, just in the last 12 months, as of time of recording, we've got three actors on the big screen playing Batman, Ben Affleck, Robert Pattinson, and Michael Keaton returned to the role after 30 years and the public just we just accept it all don't we and yet two actors playing Doctor Who back then it was a big deal yeah I think any show to go from the TV to the movie was rare is the impression I've always got unless I'm wrong there but I always got the impression like if something stayed was or the television program it stayed in television. Stayed in its it, lane, some, yeah. Yeah, it sort of stayed in its own lane, yeah. The fact that this might have, it'd make a bit more sense if this maybe was during Tom's era, when like the show was like everywhere and it was such a height of its powers. But for William Hartnell's run to have this, when, he, when it was still quite new and the character was still sort of establishing themselves, I think it's incredibly risky, I think. I don't know what you feel like, but I think it shows a lot of gumption and risk. I think it's testimony to the huge impact of the character in such a short period of time. William Hartnell had, uh, had brought to life a genuine TV icon, a purpose-built TV icon. Whereas, I suppose, on British te television in particular, probably, I think there'd been very, very few up till then. Dixon of Doc Green was probably one, but he started in films as well. And so this was something that genuinely had, had been conceived for television and was taking flight. That's what makes it so idiosyncratic. It Doctor Who absolutely does belong on TV, without a shadow of a doubt. I suppose you could say it was greed that people wanted to make these films. <laughs> but it's a kind of a moment of inspiration, really, to you know go to, if not the biggest movie star on the planet at the time, certainly Peter Cushing, as you say, somebody who was this really, really noted, really respected actor, who everybody knew. He brought his own... He didn't bring his own uh, take on the character as such, but he brought his own star power. And it was obviously, he was tremendously successful in that first of the, we, we call them the Dalek movies, don't we, from the 1960s. And we got together and we talked about them last year on the show. So yeah, we covered Doctor Who and the Daleks from 1965, starred Peter Cushing and Roberta Tovey. And we went and did a, a deep dive review on that. And we're back again, this time for the sequel. It was re-released last year around the cinemas and onto home media. We had a bit of a chinwag about that second and final installment of Doctor Who, the adventures of Doctor Full Stop or Doctor Period Who. And we'll get stuck into all of that in a few minutes. But before we do opening up that whole parallel universe, Charlotte, it sounds 
absolutely exhausting. So whilst I remember, I'm going to take a moment to remind you that each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice. Only if you know where to look. There's dozens upon dozens of reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs, deep dives, everything else with all our regular panellists and some pretty awesome guests. In fact, we know there's something for every fan over at type40.podbean.com. Before I forget, of course, we'll be making contact with that matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other cult conversations going on across all the other shows over there. Almost there, primed, ready to go. The test tubes are bubbling away and everything's whizzing and whirring. I can practically feel the warmth of a lava lamp against my <laughs> against my own cheek. But I did want to mention before we did, our friend, Emma Clockler. So uh, a little while after this was recorded, our panelist, fellow fan, and much loved and respected friend to so many in the Doctor Who community, Emma Clockler passed away. I'd not known Ian personally for that long, but he'd made a big impact on me in that time. And whilst I was in no doubt, Ian would want his review and memories of this movie very much out there. He's that kind of guy. I didn't feel it was appropriate to release this or any of the other unpublished material he worked on with us until now. Ian was his uh, verbose, playful and authoritative self as always, Charlotte, and right back there in his uh, in his happy place, wasn't he? Yeah, this was my first ever proper more meeting of Ian. I'd see, I knew he was a good friend, and I can just remember him being so warm from the moment when you were like, "Oh, this is Charlotte," you, yeah. and he just was like, and he just instantly was chatting because we do chat quite a bit before we sort of record these yeah. these things. You could see he was interested in the fact that. I came at a very different point to this show than he did. Instead of looking down at that, he, he loved that and he was interested. All that Ian ever needed to know was that you were another Doctor Who fan. That was enough. From, from then on, he was, I mean, Ian was interested in people anyway. It was the, certainly by all accounts that I've heard about his life before I met him. But Doctor Who fans, he would, he, he would want to know what your favourite stories were when you found the show. Uh, all manner of things in between. And he was happy to share all his memories too, to tell you, for, in exchange for him wanting to know your favourite stories, for example, your favourite characters, and your happy place, he was always happy to share his. And that's where we're going now, right back to the earliest days of the Doctor Who phenomena in the mid-60s. Over to us. The first theatrical film based on the hit BBC TV series Doctor Who, Doctor Who and the Daleks, starring Peter Cushing, had been a huge success, exceeding expectations and even playing well overseas. A sequel from the same production team was being talked about right away, with Cushing returning on the one condition that Roberta Tovey would also return as Doctor Who's granddaughter Susan for Daleks. Invasion Earth 2150 AD with a much larger budget, with masses of location filming and a much larger speaking cast. And it would be in the cinemas just under a year later, from the 5th of August 1966 
I'm back to talk about this film again in the Doctor Who series, the short-lived Doctor Who movie series, along with JT, with horror hound Peter, and with our good friend, human search engine, Ian McLaughlin. Yeah, we are. I'm delighted to say joining us this time is Charlotte Shields. You've just watched the film as well, haven't you, Charlotte? So she's going to give us her fresh take on this classic 1966 sci-fi extravaganza that yet again they bring in at under 90 minutes. An incredible feat. So yeah, this is the second of sadly only two Doctor Who theatrical movies that were released in the mid-60s, reunited. Okay, half of the cast, but a great deal of the production team. And I think it upscaled. The expression JT for this one is upscaling, isn't it? Oh, it is, absolutely, because this is actually completely different when you compare it to Doctor Who and the Daleks. Um, Invasion of 2150 comes across as a little bit more glossy. You mentioned at the top of the show that there is outdoor filming, which they didn't have in the previous film. The budget is, has been slightly increased. And then there's sort of little things, the refinements to the Daleks, the refinements to the TARDIS, uh, the, uh, and that humour tone. It's a very confident film, I think. Obviously, they the only way to get better at doing anything is to just do it over and over again, isn't it? So, understandably, they'd probably been on somewhat of a learning curve with Doctor Who and the Daleks in 1965. To come out with a second film, though, so quickly, Ian, it's, it's very confident, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, it was great that they, that they did that. Uh, as I said in my earlier talk, I only saw it in a double bill because I hadn't seen Doctor and the Daleks originally. Lucky boy. Father took me to see the two films. I remember seeing the poster and I thought, oh, another Dalek film. That sounds interesting. <laughs> Oftentimes you probably wouldn't be that aware of what you were going to get at the cinema until a few weeks beforehand when you would see it in a display case next, actually from the high street as you're walking past the cinema. I remember seeing clips from the first film on television uh, in a in a program about films, but I don't remember anything about the second film. So the first time I knew about it was the poster. Uh, see, even the image of the poster, Ian, is totally different to the one for the previous film. It gives you that that grander awareness as a child. If you saw that back in the day, you must be thinking this is this is a bit more action. This is a bit more dramatic. Yes, it's interesting. It's not Doctor Who in the front. It's a Robo Man. When we last spoke, Pete, I think we all kind of realised that they're probably Dalek films, but there's no doubt about it, is, is that by the second movie that the Daleks really are the stars of this film. Yeah, this is the one. This is the one. You know, uh, they really have cranked it up several notches, much darker in tone, significant improvement. This is really what we're talking about. Absolutely love this one. It starts with this incredibly evocative opening, swirling sort of vortex, doesn't it? That, that it's slightly less cosy from the from the get-go, JT. There's a pre-credit sequence that is so well shot, so full of wit and movement and a flavour that really sets you up for this film. It reminds me of uh, Flash Gordon, even, and all those kinds of movies oh, and the old serials. We didn't get that with the first film, the, the pre-credit sequence. Again, it's next level cinematic. Although the budget didn't double or triple, they have got more money to play with. And that's 
immediate from the get-go, isn't it? That's you totally see it immediately on screen, don't you? You really do from that. Uh, I mean, I mean, there are slight, this movie is slightly ahead of its time, really, because you've got the, 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 the opening sequence, then you've got a title sequence, which is very, you know, it's, it's very science fiction in a sense. You know, they've learned from there, you know, and it's, it's got that wonderful theme, that very 60s film mixed with that um, ingredient of electronic music in there. It, it, it assumes you've seen the first Peter Cushing film. You know this is Peter Cushing. Yeah. You know this is Susan. Um, you know that this is a policeman that's just come in on the action. And then the only new character, of course, is his niece, Louise. Mm -hmm. So, and that's crossed over very quickly as well when he introduced her, this my niece Louise, and then on to the next one. Wonderful stuff and bang straight into the action. And as Peter was uh, saying there as well, the stakes are higher when you go into this because you're just taken deliberately to the year 2150 and you're straight into the story. And I'm glad that you've mentioned the music. It has a superb soundtrack. And I would say uh, some of my old favorite programs in the 60s, including Lost in Space, Land of the Giants, had fantastic soundtracks. Mm. And if you got a film or a series with a great musical soundtrack, that makes all the difference. Um, yeah, so again, it's, it's ambitious and it sounds like a bigger film than it than it actually is oh. <laughs> yeah and that's what I, that's what i admire about these films that's why what i admire about everything that amicus was was doing and a lot of what british cinema had been doing up to that point i think we were at the point now in history in the mid 60s 66 in particular where the british film industry was sadly on on the verge of a kind of collapse but you would never know it from a film with this amount of swagger for want of a, of a better word it helped the kellogg's sugar puffs it's it's actually one of those things you know you've got the branding for sugar puffs as the product placement because they obviously invested in the film in their 2150 they're still using the 1960s branding so maybe they were <laughs> obviously charlotte we grew up watching these films you know they they've been shown they've been screened on television umpteen times across various different channels ian went to see it in the cinema albeit in a double bill but how many times have you seen Dalek's Invasion of 2150 AD? When did you first catch it? I sort of knew about their existence more than actually knowing what the films were, if that makes sense. Yeah. And before I'd watched them once, because I am going through classic right now, I'm sort of doing it bit by bit. So I knew I had to watch them because it just felt right. So this was the second time I'd watched them. And yeah, it's, I really love the opening though, because it's quite sort of it's not big you obviously get the opening with bernard cribbins's character and the sort of just this sort of policeman who's looking like he wants to go on holiday and he wants to do something a bit more but i like that opening actually it's sort of a bit cozy and then it expands out it's actually a lovely way charlotte isn't it to introduce a new companion caught up in a in a, um, um, in a jewel heist and he ends up seeing a police box he's a policeman that's how they used to call for help and then he gets kidnapped by this madman we talked about Doctor Who and the Daleks, about how that opening scene, uh, albeit after the credits, we, we pan around a sitting room, a normal British sitting room with a, a normal on the surface family and no words are spoken. We get that in the pre-credit sequence. You know, Ian's right about that the music, there's, there's whistles being blown and it all feels very Dixon of Doc Green, very Zed cars maybe. But again, we don't, there's no dialogue at all. There's puffing and panting and, and that's largely it just in case you haven't seen this film or you're a bit a bit shaky about what happens in the movie 
Police Constable Tom Campbell witnesses a dual theft and runs into a police call box to get some backup. However, the phone box happens to be Doctor Who's TARDIS and he is instead whisked away to the year 2150 with Doctor Who, his granddaughter Susan and niece Louise. There they find a London reduced to ruins after an invasion by the Daleks, patrolled by their zombified human robo-men. Ah! Soon, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? I'm on the edge of my seat just reading about it. Soon the time travellers are captured and taken to be used as part of the Dalek slave labour force, mining the very core of the Earth to turn the planet into a giant Dalek spaceship. Whew, talk about the stakes going up. Wasn't it interesting? Dan, I mean, a yes. couple of points I, I would make there. 1966, Dodo went into a police box um, thinking it was a genuine police box at the same time uh, as it happened in the film. Now, maybe some of you will tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, I've read somewhere that Peter Cushing was ill at the time of that film. Being it was only so. Yeah. was reduced. Uh, considerably to what yeah. it would be originally. So it wasn't quite end up the way they expected. Um, it was interesting because um, Jill Curzon was an actress I was aware of because she was in Hugh and I. That was a sitcom um, that starred Hugh Lloyd and Terry uh, Scott, wasn't it, in the early absolutely. 60s? Absolutely. Yes. Who 60s. was Jill, Jill Curzon then? Because as far as I've been able to work out, she started out as England's clay pigeon shooting champion in 1960 and became a bit of a glamour model and then an actress. So it does seem like a strange curvature to no, fame. Yes. Unlike the first film, uh, where I wasn't aware of um, Jenny Linden, I was aware of Jill Curzon uh, and I was pleased to see her uh, in the big screen. Jenny Linden wasn't available. She'd got prior commitment, so she couldn't be in this film. And the same with Roy Castle. You know, Roy Castle was very much in demand, and he was yeah. booked to go on tour. So, so Doctor Who does get two new uh, cohorts in in this movie. I personally think that Jill Curzon is um, very uh, modern. I don't know how it was written originally, and how late in the day they found out that Jenny Linden couldn't return because it feels like such a different character jt it's interesting how that how that's come about you know because of the unavailability of of actors and then another actor coming in and taking over and i guess it's something that jill would have to tell us herself how she how she approached it but it doesn't harm the dynamic of the setup and actually this is a film where they're not unlike the previous one they're not all together throughout the whole film they're mm. actually split up in good old doctor who tradition whereas the first one seemed like a more kind of cozy enjoyable yeah. romp this meant business there was not the color palette that the first one had it's a lot darker and starker the imagery i mean it's outstanding really sinister you've got the daleks going about london coming out the thames against that kind of apocalyptic backdrop and i think that that really lends itself the kind of the thing that we now see in, in movies such as 28 Days Later, they did something like that, didn't they, as well? Yeah, but here we have it in a sort of proto form. And no, it's no less unnerving, is it, the way that it portrays 
uh, the London that we that we recognise and communities that we recognise and, and people maybe that are very similar to to those that we may live alongside or even have within our own family. I think that's one of the one of the things that works so well about about this film. But I want to talk briefly yeah. about about yeah. Bernard Cribbins because yeah. at the time Bernard Cribbins was a familiar face on TV and in film. He was 38 years old at the time. He'd been in been in such films as Two Way Stretch and The Wrong Arm of the Law. The Mouse on the Moon, that starred Peter, that starred Peter Sellers, didn't it, Ian? That's, yes. yeah. The, the other yeah. Moon film starred William Hartnell. That's right. So this, is, this is a man who'd, who'd been, he'd been around. And so in the absence of, of Roy Castle, I think if, you, I, if you're going to get somebody to sort of fill that void, Bernard Cribbins is, I can't imagine getting better, really. No. Again, a, a very no. physical actor, slightly more rough and tumble, I think. And he brings, I think he's very convincing as Tom Campbell. It is, it is a nice sort of uh, bit of casting there because, of course, the public would have known Bernard Cribbins because he was he was huge then. Never mind now with all our generation growing up with him, basically, through Jack and Ori and various things. He had been in the Carry On films. So his comic timing had been proved. And what he brings here to, to the role of Tom in this, he I... knows he's playing a policeman. And yet the comic bits that are brought through are done beautifully because it's not over the top. It's not slapstick um, like, you know, what Roy was uh, told to do at the end yeah. of the first film. Nothing, with against, nothing against Roy Castle, but I think that the Bernard Cribbins is uh, considerably better at, at conveying the the actual the truth of, of a character he's very convincing as a policeman but he can turn his hand to the physical stuff as well yeah, and I, yeah. I really enjoy bernard cribbins in this because charlotte you're very familiar with bernard cribbins in doctor who through, through playing another character entirely aren't you so <laughs> yeah i, I knew his, I, I love him and knew, I knew him as wilf and i think even just and i think it was interesting to see him in this be young because I could compare almost in my head, even if I didn't know I was doing it. And yeah. I could see that sort of... I think he plays fish out of water brilliantly, because obviously his character's just been chucked in with these mad people, and he's just been chucked into the end of the world out of nowhere. So it's he sort of goes from being fish out of water to very quickly adapting his character. And Bernard plays that quite well, but you don't think... Yeah. Oh, it doesn't make sense why he's suddenly capable. It's almost like he, already, he always had that in him. It was just this adventure that brought that out. Did you find when watching it, you you, you took to the character, not just uh, uh, of Tom with, with Bernard playing him, but of the others and Peter's Doctor Who, did you find that you liked them instantly? You could tell this was a human Doctor, and I knew that going in, that in this version, the Doctor's not a Time Lord. He's like this sort of mad scientist was my rough understanding. I don't want to say he, he comes across as intelligent, but on a human level. And you can get that in the performance. And I think him and Cribbins have some very fun chemistry as like a double act, especially when like they're exploring the warehouse. I do though think I prefer um, Barbara from the, from the classic series, because I, I really love Barbara and obviously- Look, she's a great actress, great actress. Yeah, Jackie. like, yeah, Louise is sort of this version of another version of Barbara. And I just think the classic's got a bit more sort of forthrightness, which I like, but I still liked Louise. I just she, prefer she's, Barbara. Yeah, she's closer, but I, I, know exactly, I know exactly what you mean. It's interesting because Bernard Cribbins, I knew from his funny songs. Right, said Fred, 
They did they did they 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 that's oh, the top ten. He was the top ten artist back then. Yeah. And later on, he was the voice of the Wombles. That's uh, right. So um to me, um I, I didn't really see many of the films he did, but uh he's more identified to me as the voice of the Wombles and the comic songs. But he had his own series about nineteen seventy one. And I saw this film before the Hartnell version. And it's, it still gets me, you know, how how the impact is on there. You know, I don't know if you guys got that same impact when you first saw this particular film. Well, this was the first one I saw, just like with the Star Wars movies, I saw them out of sequence. I saw, the, I saw this one first. So I had no idea what had happened in the in the first movie but obviously the the general dna of of doctor who as a formula if it has one is is there now all you need really need i suppose is the disappearing and reappearing box the the figure of the doctor the recognizable eccentric slightly older than middle age slightly a noble adventure it, it, he is still very much there. And uh, yeah, I, I wasn't familiar with the story at all. And so for me, this was, I think, probably for the best part of five or six years, but maybe longer, no, seven or eight years. This was the only version of this story yeah. that I that I knew of. And Peter Cushing's Doctor was, was still very much, I, I was aware that this was a part of the continuity, but he was still a character that, that I really warmed to and that I loved. Peter Cushing had had huge success as, as i think we've spoken about before on the show he had huge success in in film and in television and stage and radio i get the impression he starts to play with the character a lot lot more seems very confident and less like he's walking in somebody else's shoes i think he stands up a little straighter yes. and he's he's more he's firmer in places which yeah. i mean i don't know what that what that's says about the script itself or whether he was being given direction like that jt oh i think so but i think also they've just come off the back of a, of a very successful first film and they've been recommissioned to do a second one now that does that does wonder for anybody um and yeah. also the fact that he was coming back with the same production team the same behind the scenes team um Confidence. i mean that would I, I mean you're right he actually said well this is my this is my particular gig you know he's not worried about what's going on on television he's not worried about that at all he's focusing on that role um, and then he's got the the, 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 the the new people around him. I think Cushion, with the type of person he was, you know, he could have got on with anybody. You know, he could have quite easily, and I'm quite sure a lot of the actors that maybe in that can he distinguished uh, role as well, they would have maybe felt that they could get away with belittling other lesser known actors that were kind of maybe just up and coming. But you know, that's that's maybe you know a testament of the uh, Cushion's nature. Can, can I go back to something uh, that was yes, of that we talked about earlier? When I was watching Doctor Who at the start in 1963, 64, I always thought of myself as the other companion. I was secretly on board the TARDIS and you were the, the, the extra passenger. Now, it's interesting, not long after, uh, I think about the 64, the Curse of the Daleks was a stage play. I remember seeing it and advertising. I thought, oh, it's in London. I'll miss that. So the, the Daleks had not only been on film, but on the stage as well. Now, when Terence Sticks wrote The Daleks in the Seven Keys to Doomsday, early, I, I never saw it, but apparently uh, Wendy Padbury was one of the characters in it, my favourite companion. Um, 
there were two characters who moved from the audience onto the stage to look after the, the doctor who wasn't well. Yeah, they now, literally pulled two people out of the audience, didn't they? Two, obviously, yeah. two actors that were planted in the audience. Yes, but a lot of people thought it could have been me. With the Tom Campbell character, he was just an ordinary policeman suddenly getting this trip of a lifetime reinforced in us that maybe one day we would meet a TARDIS. Yeah. Maybe one day we would go off and have thrilling adventures. And um, Ber Bernard Cribbins' character was interesting because he was quite a normal everyday character. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that it, they sorted it out in the end. The end of the film was a, a good bookend. It was a wonderful time, I can assure you. I lived through it. Obviously, as well as Peter Cushion, we talked about it earlier on, Roberta Tovey also appeared again as a Susan, the Doctor's young granddaughter. She's 12 years old, making, <laughs> making her second appearance as Susan here. She's wonderful in this. And if anything, this girl has to do even more, more acting kind of, sort of, stunts. And with the regrettable illness of Peter Cushing, apparently, yes, he did fall ill during the making of this film. And so portions of it had to be rewritten and some of the some of the action had to be reallocated. Yeah. I think that Roberta sort of picks up a lot of that. And I'm as invested in her as I am in, in the Doctor. In fact, all four of them. But particularly that there's something about Roberta Tovey in this in this part. I think it's a really sophisticated performance. Charlotte, what do you think about this? You know, an 11 stroke, 12 year old actress in a movie like this, playing such an integral part of conveying the drama, does, does that stand out to you? I, I think it was interesting just to have a child Susan for me, because I'm so used to the TV show where yeah. she's, she, she's, she, she is somebody's granddaughter, but she's grown up. So to have woman, that. Yeah. Yeah, so to have that more innocent sort of version, that sort of like, and it sort of had that, you have that instinct of wanting to protect her as well. I found that watching it, that I was really yeah. like, oh, yeah, the, the, when, whenever she got in trouble, I was a bit more worried. But yeah, but, but to go against that, like you said, she has got that sense of adultness almost, like when she's saying, no, we have to go back, we have to go and get the doctor. You don't doubt that, and she does have no. that, that that strength in her voice. So it's, it's so interesting to see that she can play both ends. I think I've that's no what also as well. I've no me. doubt as well that she could probably fly TARDIS on her own oh. as well. I get the impression she's been delegated. Well, she did build duty. it. Yeah, <laughs> that but that Susan. It was established in the first one that that particular Susan helped grandfather to build the thing. So absolutely, she can. Yes, but but one of the things that's interesting uh, is maybe a generational thing. Um, when I was a youngster growing up, you didn't much like to see heroes as children. You didn't like children as being heroes. That's that's interesting. That they definitely definitely didn't make Susan uh, the the TV Susan uh, a child actor. And I would admit that Roberta Tovey is a better actress than a lot of the child actors oh. um, and actresses of the period. But um, nowadays it's all about being represented. But I, because I'm so much older than you, um, uh, I, I remember 
not being particularly keen on seeing people of my own age uh, on screen. Annoying kids, precocious kids, irritating. That's the word that you usually hear. She managed, she got it spot on. She hit the right note as that character. She wasn't that kind of smart-alecky, annoying, bratish child. You know, she really had, she she kind of commanded it. She had a presence that was almost a kind of, she, she was like an authority figure in, mm. in miniature. You know, yeah. she knew what she was talking about uh, and you can kind of trusted her. Um, so and I think she's a very, very solid performance. Again. Well, when you look at her relationship with Tyler in the in 2150, that's a very mature performance for such an, uh, a young actor mm -hmm. um, with, a, with an actual established actor. Um, and the, the, the partnership there that they've evolved and worked on comes through brilliantly in that film because you know he's looking after her begrudgingly and of course he really really gets very fond of her um as their adventure continues as they're moving up um to bedfordshire it, it's it's a beautiful yeah. performance from those two they it carry, they carry a lot of the film it reminds it me is. jt it of is. game of thrones the character of the hound when he's escorting Arya stark across an entire season of game of thrones it's a very similar relationship a, a very grizzled character andrew <laughs> keir plays plays Wyler in this. He played I think he was he'd either played Quatermass or was he about was, to play Quatermass. Yeah. Another okay. hammer name. Another big hammer name, Andrew Keith. Oh, was he in Hammer as well? Reliable yeah. actor. He, he, he played the Quatermass in the pit. He played yeah. uh, Quatermass. Ray Brooks was in a film called The Knack, wasn't he? Which was a kind of a kitchen Knack. sink drama. Yeah. Very, yeah. very much a face of the time, wasn't he wasn't he? And so casting yeah. Ray Brooks would have also got people's attention. Absolutely. One of the key things in the TV series of Dalek's Invasion of Earth was they had to write out Susan. So she had to fall in love with David Campbell. Now, mm. that was, they had to change it. And that's why he became Tom Campbell and completely different dynamics altogether. The David in the, um, the Ray Brooks character. Well, of course, in 2150, David is with the doc with Doctor Who, isn't he? I, that rings a bell with me because I remember when I first sat down to watch this, that Saturday morning all those years ago, Ian. Um, I had read by that point the target novelization of, of the of the serial. And I knew yeah. that Susan, I mean, it was well known, Susan left at the end. And I was quite, how are they going to write this Susan out of this <laughs> out of this film? So when you get to the end and they don't, like, ah, that's how they do that. You know, it's, yeah. it, you know okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the, the classic Doctor Who TV series, there are other names that we faces that we see turn up umpteen times in classic Doctor Who. Philip Maddock yeah. had yeah. several roles in Doctor Who. He's also in, in uh, the second Dalek movie. Yeah. So is Eileen Way, who was in the very first Doctor Who story, wasn't she? And she turned up yeah. later in, the, in Creature from the Pit. So she's in this too. And the uh, the rest of the cast is made up of uh, Sheila Stiefel is Ooh, yeah, playing a young, a young crone. <laughs> Kenneth Watson plays Craddock. Eddie Powell, poor Eddie Powell, they throw him off all sorts of buildings and do all sorts yeah. of nasty things to him, don't they? He plays Thompson, uh, Keith Marsh is Conway, and yeah, it's uh, there's Godfrey Quigley as well plays Dortman, who's the, he's sort of the uh, the brains of the outfit when it comes to the human resistance against the Daleks. And again, another very hard character that wouldn't be out of place in a science fiction movie like Solient Green, for example, or the Amiga Man, it, 
he feels like he's connected to that mode of sci-fi that was kind yeah. of being ushered in. Whereas the first movie, Doctor Who and the Daleks, as much as I love it, was a little... There's a sense that some of it is a hangover from the 1950s. I think this film is absolutely the 1960s and kind of prescient to a small degree to JT, like you were saying, slightly ahead of its time. Well, definitely slightly ahead of its time from its production value. I mean, as a young person watching this film, you could you could tell that it was bigger because of the outside location. I mean, I was impressed to find out years later that the scene where the Dalek saucer has arrived in the vicinity of Sloan Square is actually a set. That was a set. I, I was and convinced it's that was with real. all that rubble and stuff like that. No, I didn't find that out for years either. With each successive re-release of, of archive movies, the the quality of them, the, the bit rates, the pixels that we get to see. Yeah, we get to see every little tiny detail of these movies now, don't we? At some films and TV shows, they age better than others. Sometimes you get to see the sellotape holding things together. <laughs> With this film, I know there's something about this movie. I think you can sometimes see the joints, but it doesn't really matter. It still has it still has enough reality to yes. to hit home that this is our earth and yet it also has that dreamlike quality that the that the first film had again a very precise balance i'd say that nowadays it, big hollywood movies can spend two or three years putting a feature film together to try and achieve a similar feeling whereas this movie was out out in cinemas less than a year it is extraordinary that yeah. the momentum behind it seems next to impossible you're absolutely absolutely right dan and of course in today's world they spend millions of dollars because it usually is a dollar on cgi effects and yet here we have daleks invasion of the year 2150 and there's one point where you can see the string on a dalek pulling the, the thing over and the explosion <laughs> going and then towards the end there's an inflatable dalek just being <laughs> destroyed that would have been pennies the, the other point uh you have to remember is the dalek invasion earth uh the original tv series uh they had to make these episodes very very quickly uh they didn't have much time on them and yes, the film uh, had uh, some more time, obviously, to prep it and get it ready. But um, the, the TV series was the same. I mean, they, they couldn't make as many episodes of Doctor Who nowadays as they did back in the 60s. Um, yeah, they, they, it was just impossible. Um, the other thing I was going to say to you um, was the Dark Invasion Earth was set in the future, but it was recognised Earth a wee bit in present day it's the first time the TARDIS team went back but went to an earth apart from planet giants the adventure was set on now remember John Pertby was to say there's nothing more frightening than seeing a yeti sitting on the loo and tooting back and of course in the Pertby series they they concentrated um on the slightly into the future because making it that way was much cheaper than building alien sets and all that sort of stuff. And that's why why they changed it. But yeah. This was uh, interesting. Although it was set in the future, it was not... They obviously had to set it in the future uh, for obvious reasons. But it wasn't too far into the future. And it yeah. had a reality about it. With Doctor Who and the Daleks, the original film being set on a planet, as you said, Dan, uh, was more sort of dreamlike. Uh, and not so realistic. 
And the big draw, of course, is it's Daleks' invasion of the Earth. Again, like in the first film, it's the Daleks in colour. You're coming off the back of it. You're able to see them in locations you can relate to. Um, and I think well, that's... I suppose, JT, that yeah. if, I, if you're being really sort of mercenary about it, you could look at the TV version and look at what worked on television there uh, and what people what had caught people's imaginations, what had got them talking about the yeah. show, continuing to talk about the show, and realising you could do that and make it, just make it, make it bigger, make it better, make it scarier, make it yeah. bite that little bit harder. And I think that's what they do again in this movie with various Absolutely. set pieces, particularly, for example, this the cliffhanger to episode one of the TV version. That's one of several moments. That, and this, this is the one that gets sort of replayed closest to the moment that we, we see on television. And obviously with, with this greater budget and, and the uh, the full cinema yeah. screen to play with, it's a, they're able to sell us on the scale of it and the, and the imminent danger. The brilliance of that is that the producers listened to the youngsters who went to see the first one, and there's more exterminations in this film. Because <laughs> that's what yeah. the kids wanted. They didn't kill enough people in the first film, so by God, they them in in the seconds. I have to say to you, I remember watching Junior Points of View. Um, oh, yeah. Friday, after... The Dark Invasion Earth film episode one, uh, World's End, had transmitted, and there were a lot of complaints. There was only one Dalek we saw uh, coming out of the water, and they didn't appreciate, which was a tremendous <laughs> scene of the Dalek coming out of the water, same as the Dalek in the sand and in this chase, but they didn't appreciate that. They wanted more Daleks in the episode. I mean, if I saw, if I'd seen that at the cinema, I would have been petrified because I would have thought, running into the water would have saved me that they wouldn't have been able to follow me in as a horror fan though pete i suspect mm -hmm. that it could probably never get too grisly for you some well, of the exterminations that we just talked about are really quite visceral in this aren't they and yes, whilst we I... haven't got the energy weapons of the tv version the the smoke that that uh, releases from the daleks guns when they exterminate people there seems so much of it it really does completely envelop it's target doesn't it and we see flailing limbs from underneath the clouds of the smoke it pushes uh, it further doesn't it yeah it does but even that aside i think in terms you know tonally this is a completely different film you know it's got a real atmosphere of menace a real threat and i think seeing the daleks especially in london you know it's somewhere you can identify with a city an invasion you I suppose know? a literal countdown as well, because the Daleks have a plan. They're doing this to our Earth. The stakes are yeah. as high as they could be for the human race. And Terrifying. we are given a, a literal countdown that th this has to happen by a certain point. And they are burning their way through human resources and human beings to achieve their goal, aren't they, Ian? We talked about the themes of the first one when we last spoke, and there are definite themes to this film as well, which were present again, present in the original script, but David Whittaker, in reworking Terry Nation's original script, he's, he's very adept at this, isn't he? I'm boiling it down. He was a very talented writer. Uh, there's something else I, I, I would say. One of my favourite films of all time is Mars Attacks. And I saw that okay. Tim Burton film twice in a matter of a fortnight, I think. And it was the only film that I went to uh, in recent times I haven't fallen asleep in. <laughs> Mars Attacks, the film, was based on a set of Topps Trump cards. You got them with the bubble gum. Um, I think it was 1962. They were very controversial at the time. 
as was the graphic, weren't they? Yes, they were very explicit. You can buy books of them. Um, the the death of a dog, which appeared in the in the film, was a very graphic because there was a lot of uh, complaints at that time about the American comic series being too graphic, and there were things asked in Parliament and so on, um, and there was uh, people who, who objected to it. So, in a sense, the, the cards that we swapped as youngsters, the Mars Attacks ones, um, were not quite as, uh, were much more graphic than what you saw in Doctor Who. And uh, it's interesting when uh, I catch episodes of The Adventures of Robin Hood with Richard Green, I'm amazed at how many, um, uh, uh, there are baddies there, they get the arrows in their back the arrows in their front, <laughs> they get Cold. killed on a regular oh, basis. And deal. that's a real family-friendly, great show for kids. And <laughs> talking, about, talking about nasty ways to go, I think that being converted into a robo-man, whether you're, particularly if you're wearing a bin liner, like the, the versions of the coats <laughs> we get in this movie, Charlotte, it's particularly nightmarish in this, I think, because of the way that the eyes are covered too, the, mm. a lot of the costumes in this, I mean, people talk about the costumes in this being 1960s casuals that are beaten up a little bit, huh. but but the production values, and I think the Robomen in particular work work really, really well. What, what do you think? Well, I, th I think it's just there's such a brilliant idea that the Daleks don't just kill everybody, they use humans as like slave labor. No and waste. it's the fact yeah. that the, and there's a line, I can't remember who says it, that, that there's a hint that basically the person's still alive or the brain, they still have a bit of that memory of who they were. Yeah, low brain activity. Yeah, there's a brilliant line about it, like oh, they're, they're still screaming or something, I can't think of the exact line. And it is just that idea of what would you rather have? Would you rather have a Dalek just kill you and have it be over with or be converted and be made into this walking, talking slave? Well, it's so interesting. It's, Charlotte, because there's that sequence that Bernard Cribbins is in when the all the old robo men are taking their snacks, which kind of sort of undermines, I think, what you were talking about and the seriousness of maybe <laughs> that was done deliberately to make it less horrific than you th you thought it would be, because yeah. that sequence to me, the comedy sequence, stands out as rather different from the rest of the film. I don't know if you agree with me. I don't think it's jarring, but I think it is, I think you're right. I think it is very different. Well, it's, it's very of its time, isn't it? And it's obviously there for Cribbins to showcase yeah. a different element of him and get the youngsters laughing at it, you know? And, and I'm sure they did. I mean, there they are, you know, doing these silly little things um, and eating licorice all sorts. Um, but it does show what, what you know, a, a different side to, to Tom. It, it shows what Cribbins can do. And it's a little bit of light relief in what could be, as Pete's uh, alluding to, quite a heavy story for young people or, have, or for children. I mean, one of the things that got me <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a young man is that some of those Robomen are very sexy because all you get to see <laughs> is just their lovely jaws and they've got this Can't big thing. Some of them must be very good looking under there. And I've noticed some of that just thinking, hang on a minute, hello. <laughs> shocking, absolutely shocking. But what disturbed <laughs> me? Seriously, I did, I found this as a child, I found this really disturbing the fact that you couldn't see their eyes. I, 
eyes the windows to the soul i suppose it's i suppose it's that simple isn't it peter it's yeah. the it's the whole the appeal of of zombies is the fact that you look in their eyes and they're glazed over there's no humanity left and i suppose it's a Where more like see a family, family friendly version <laughs> <laughs> more family friendly. that's just down to the cash point yesterday <laughs> the, oh yeah i forgot where you live yeah it's a more family friendly version of the same principle really yeah, I mean, consider consider the in, the interval between this and the first film. You know, it's it couldn't be any more different. I mean, it really could not be any more different. There's a real the threat level, the tension, just the the whole um, everything that's um, you know more or less implied as well. You know, it's not it's not really graphic and in your face. Um, it's done very subtly, but nevertheless. It's incredibly effective. It really is. We're so used to the Doctor being fighting against an enemy, an invasion, and in this story, it's happened. They've we've lost the mm. Earth as the Daleks as reigning supreme, and everything's gone the most horrible version. So it's interesting to see, and I felt this in the classic that the Doctor's having to fight against, I think, higher odds because of that, and mm. especially here with because you see the ships you see the power i think this movie really does convey it's got a sense of scale that... hasn't it charlotte the, the, the ships seem massive the landscapes seem so detailed that you can believe yeah. even though it was all filmed at shepherds and studios again it does seem it does seem like this is the, the entire world that's at stake and it feels like they're finally because this is a film and they have the money they're really running with an idea that the show could try its best and i think the classic serial really did and I actually found some bits of the classic serial a bit more, actually, I would say sinister. Because yes. I think, right. for, for example, that scene we were talking about with the Dalek coming out the water, mm. I, I think the classic one's a bit more sinister. Because when, when, when Ian's on, the, on, the, on that bit of beach or whatever it is, I can't remember now, and you've mm -hmm. just seen the sign that says, like, um, don't dump bodies. And you just think, I'm watching yeah, Doctor yeah. Who and there's a sign talking about dumping bodies. Yeah. And then a Dalek slowly, and I think that's what it is in the more classic, it's a bit more slower and it's a bit more sort of it's, that slow plod. It's a little bit different for the movie, Charlotte, because of course they had to get back through censors. Uh, which the BBC didn't have to do. They could they could get away with that as a drama or whatever. That's how they could produce it. With the movie, you had to get through your classification, um, and that would have been a, that would have been a big well, hello from the people back then. No, you can't show anything. Like that. What the movie manages to do though is it changes that script, doesn't it? I don't know if you got this while watching it. There's a mystery at the beginning. You've got the, you've got Act One, which is before the titles, and then the second act is after titles. They arrive in London, and it's that mystery of what's gone on, what's happening. The Doctor and Tom go off to to try and investigate stuff, and you got louise and susan that stay separately and then you know they, they they get lost as it were and it builds up that mystery so whereas when episode one the impact of the dalek coming up from the thames is a sheer shock uh, in a sense yeah, in this one you're expecting place. it and you're building up to when is it going to happen surely that's possibly what happened back then it's hard to say because obviously yeah. tom didn't know what a dalek was doctor who does doesn't he doctor and they're, does, yeah. yes. they're his old enemies one of the things that interesting, um, I, I just throw out when I remember, because I, I you know, you, you trigger me to remember things <laughs> and then I forget, is would it have been better if the two Doctor Who movies had been original stories rather than based on existing scripts? 
I think the problem with that would have been time, wouldn't it, Ian? Because they were they were coming off the back of the success of the first couple of years of the of the TV show. They were also riding the wave, as we mentioned in our previous episode, of the merchandise and everybody wanting Dalek merchandise. And there was money to be made, and it had to be made quickly. The fact that the film, the first film, was received very quickly, they had to go from a bat. They have a script there that's handy. All it needs is a bit of a rewrite to suit the budget they've got, the time limit they've got, the cast they've got, whatever. You know, had they moved forward with any. Uh, others, they would have all been based on the serial. They did consider briefly turning the keys of Marinus into the second Doctor Who film. My very, favorite very briefly. serial. My favorite <laughs> serial. I missed the first two episodes uh, when it was originally transmitted. Uh, I, I missed the Velvet Web and the Screaming Jungle, but I saw it uh, later, obviously. The sky would have been the limit had this one performed a little bit well, but everything has its time and everything has its place. And Dalek, by the time this uh, 2150 AD was released, Dalek mania was dying off. We, we, we know that. That's, that's, a, that's a fact. And people were moving on. And the show was also moving on on television. So, you know, um, there were hits and misses around this sort of thing. The budget to Dalek Invasion Earth 2150 AD was £286,000. So it's not, wow. not twice the budget, but it's a... A significant increase yeah. on the first one. And Amicus had originally yeah. bought the option to make uh, three Dalek-related stories yeah. from Terry Nation and the, and the BBC, so negotiated with both of them. They did make moves to, to make a third one. I think they'd got it in the back of their heads while they were making this one, that the third one was going to be based on, on the chase. But it was, it was pulled solely because this film unbelievably underperformed at the box office. It seems yeah. so strange when I think generally speaking, how people react to these movies is similar to how you do, Peter. But this is probably nearer the mark. Yes, it didn't tell you anywhere near make the kind of money that they that they expected yeah. to, that they needed it to, to to justify that third one, which obviously they would have wanted to. Because I think when you make successive films in a series, if you look at the James Bond films, obviously it's a prime example, your ideal scenario is that each successive one is bigger and yes. better than the previous one to justify getting people out of their homes. I mean, it, perhaps it wasn't quite so much in the mid 60s when there wasn't home video and streaming and all that kind of thing. People need a lot more persuasion to get off, off the sofa now. But back then, I, th I think it probably was the case too, particularly with the, the gradual decline of Dalek Mania, as you described there, JT. I hadn't thought of that. Look at what was going on. Um, when this movie was released, the young, the young, the original youngsters were growing up again. This film now, if it was being made now, they would tag it as a health and safety nightmare. Apparently, <laughs> lots of stuntmen, lots of stuntmen were were injured. Things caught fire. Things exploded. Things fell down. It was a, <laughs> it was a bit of a disaster. Maybe that could have been. Perhaps that was the momentum of the shoot. The fact that this again was made over like a six or seven week period. Uh, very, very intense, with a lot more extra bodies doing a lot more things. And I, I was I was watching a documentary about it the other day and saying about how the, the, the van chase with Andrew Keir's character and, and Susan, Wyler and Susan, are in the van. And uh, apparently that van was, was driving at a, at, a proper, at a proper rate, at a proper lick. As, you know, it had, it had knocked over all those Daleks and then shoot off down this country lane. But Andrew Keir, who was... It while it was meant to be driving, he was given a stuntman. But Roberta Tovey, who not... was like 12 years old, wasn't. She was told, and there was no seatbelt in that van. So she was told to hang on 
hang on for dear life whilst the stuntman swings this van around and then they jump out of it and somebody blows the bastard up yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean that that you're absolutely right i mean you wouldn't get you wouldn't get away with any of that today but then the filming all techniques shot in about an hour well. as well jt all shot in about what? an hour you probably all do it now from the comfort of a robotic soundstage where the car's moving around and it's a false car in front of a visual screen, all the latest technology there. You know, you don't even have to go outside anymore to do any of that stuff. You can really project it all. I mean, that's the beauty of these films. I mean, they are very much of their time and you can actually see the influence of that um, coming through. I want to say something, though, about the design of this film, because although it's not as, as glaring, as its predecessor, it's still quite, it's still beautifully done. I mean, we talked about the, uh, the exterior sets built at uh, Shepparton recently, but the Daleks themselves, I think, look gorgeous. They, are, they have moved on from Doctor Who and the Daleks, which I love the Dalek look in those. These are slightly more subtle. You're starting to see the TV influence here. You're getting yeah, just- it's, that, it's the midpoint, isn't it, between the TV and the, and the previous Absolutely. film? Absolutely. And, and I think it's more Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 that has, has impacted on modern day Daleks, if you know what I mean, and, and the look of them. Sabotsky and Gordon Fleming. I mean, now when we talk about Gordon Fleming, he's now, it always comes with that, uh, that footnote that he was, Gordon Fleming died in 1991, but his son is Jason Fleming, who I think we've all seen in, in several Primeval. movies. He's worked a lot with Guy Ritchie. He was a, he was a regular on Primeval. He's been yeah. in X-Men films and all that kind of thing. The two guys, you know, the, the writer and the, uh, the director, they did want to make more Doctor Who movies, and Sabotsky in particular. The idea never really left him. He continued trying to make a Doctor Who movie until well into the 80s. I mean, I'm not sure who it would have starred, but he, he kept going back to the idea and working up scripts of all these other things were also sort of bubbling along. I suppose Doctor Who as a concept, as cosy as it all is, and Saturday Tea Times, all those things that we talk about, I think it's very evident that it could be upscaled in this way and still maintain its integrity and to be recognizably the same thing. And I feel that as much as I love the first film, that's probably a balance that Daleks Invasion Earth does strike that bit better, that bit clearer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough example. It is bolder. It's more confident in what it's doing. And it's fantastic that it's going to get the chance to be re-released again, um, not just as the 4K and the Blu-ray version, but the opportunity to hopefully see it on the big screen as it was originally made. I mean, what a, what a tribute to everybody that was involved with it. The people who made these films, they were immensely talented people in a country where they probably weren't getting the financial support that, that was needed. They would have to look to go elsewhere, but they clearly loved what they, what they did. And, and so you, know, you got brands like, like Amicus and Hammer. And I, in fact, I didn't, didn't Hammer, they drifted into making comedy for a while as well. Didn't they make the yeah. On the Buzzes films that we yeah. previously talked about? <laughs> so you can, see British, you can see British films sort of Something's grabbing, trying to reach for guide rails to take them into the 70s until things would hopefully turn themselves around. But, but sadly, that, that didn't happen. And yeah, and the, third, the third Doctor Who film was, was obviously a casualty of that. We're, all go we're always going to be left with the whole thing about, you know, what would have happened, you know, what, what would have happened if they, if they had gone for that legendary lost third film. Fantasy films. He, he didn't make many modern day films or sort of kitchen sink dramas or anything like that. He, he, no. he was making fantastic films, whether it was Star Wars or uh, the Hammer Horrors. 
Um, I, I don't remember Peter starring in anything which would be classified as a down-to-earth drama. Wow. No, I think he was more, he was quite entrenched in, you know, the horror genre by then. No. Do you think that, that his, a lot of his um, appeal comes from the fact that he could appear within scenarios, I won't even say fantasies, because I don't think it needed to be fantasy, but he could appear in productions that were slightly bizarre and left field and exaggerated. But he was such a, um, a considered yeah. actor, a contained actor, and he had a star quality, but there was enough of the everyman in, in him, innately in him, that he could sell really outlandish scenarios, plots, and fantasies because because of just something that something about him about him personally and about the way he works with material you know and he could have he could have easily taken on like another one what we're going to do now is take a look and to whet our appetites for this re-release and yeah hold tight everybody here it comes this is the year 2150 look Find out their weakness. We'll show them who the masters are. Nothing can stop us now. You've got to hand it to them. Whoever's putting these trailers together, Charlotte, considering that film's nearly 60 years old. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's brilliant, and I just think in general, what I love about Doctor Who is it just—it seems like it's never wanting to forget its past. It's always wanting to embrace it. Timeless child. Mm. <laughs> we're, we're not talking Point about that. Nice no, things. No. Nice <laughs> things. Um, and it's, true, it would be amazing, Charlotte, to see how well it's done since, um, you know, <laughs> because uh, we've all attached ourselves to it. You have my generation coming and discovering it on, on BBC One television on a Saturday morning. You've had your generation coming in. We've got new ones still coming in. There are going to be youngsters who are going to be discovering it now on all the, all the, all the other channels we've got, plus the Blu-ray editions. We had the videos going for years. I mean, that's, the, that's why these, these Dalek films are still around and why we still have talked to them today and why you can still get all these specials because they are part of, of what we do. And, and, and it's lovely that we're able to celebrate them again. And congratulations to Canal for bringing out these brand new versions and, and bringing it all back out again. It's wonderful, exciting. It'd be lovely if we had a film based on the Dalek master plan, because the two Dalek films that exist, exist as TV versions, but sadly the Dalek master plan has only got a couple of episodes surviving. Wouldn't yeah. it be great to have a <gasps> Why did he have to say that? Now I want that film. Surely that's not impossible. Bring it on, we're all ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But you know, you know what I love even more? It's the chance in the show where we get to we get to vote where we rate this film, this particular chunk of Doctor Who history. So what I'd like to know, Peter, is how many flying saucers out of five do you give Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD? A very confident five. Do you want to tell us why in a nutshell? Yeah. Why why does this one steal the very top the top vote for you there? It, it just has all the thunder. It really does uh, everything like that. that the first film didn't have. Although the first film 
you know, had strengths in other areas. As it's it was a fun, enjoyable role. But this one was more menacing. It looked better. It felt better. It was bolder. It went further. And it just was tremendous. Great fun. <laughs> I'm glad you're happy, my friend. Ian, loved how that, many flying saucers it, out it. of five do you give this film? Six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. I'll take six as well then. <laughs> so, so you you think it's better than the first one as well? You you're confident of that? Oh, oh yes, uh, I enjoyed it more than the first one. The first one is good as well. They're both yeah. good. The, but Doctor Who in the sixties was excellent. The sixties was the best area uh, era of the show, uh, according. <laughs> But the 60s television in general was better. Look at all the wonderful programs we had in the 60s. Lost in Space, Time Tunnel, uh, Land of the Giants, The Avengers, um, Champions, Department S, The Saint, The Danger Man. What do you get nowadays? Endless editions. Repeats. You get repeats from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> That's how the quality is. You know what, Ian? Actually, the more I think about it, I do feel that this but this film does kind of feel like Doctor Who if it was if it would, if it would have been made by ITC or somebody like that. I think it feels yes. closer to, to yeah, that model. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. yeah. The, the yep. sheen, the sheen of it, and that slight slight darkness to it. But yeah, I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. JT, how many flying saucers out of five do you give this film? <laughs> flying saucers out of five for this one. Now, I do love this film. I do love it, but it's not the one I tend to go back to. If I'm going to stick a Dalek film on, I'll go to Doctor Who and the Daleks. Um, for me, this film loses me around about the middle, so I'm going to give this four. <gasps> why, do you think it, why do you think it suffers in, in the middle in particular? I'm not, I'm not too sure. I, just, I think I just, and I, I found this when I was younger as well. Uh, I just got a little bit bored in the middle with all, all that whole thing about going through the countryside and then meeting the the, the, the the crones, as they're called, and all this sort of stuff. It just loses me a little bit, whereas the uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks doesn't. I'm engaged throughout it, and it has a different feel. The two, As we've said here, the two films have a different tone, and the first one engages me more. Um, you but think... I still love this. I still love this film. Do you think the absence of Peter Cushing from portions of it doesn't help either? Because I, I definitely feel that. Yes, it could it could actually be that, um, now that I look at it that sort of way. Um, yeah, because I find Peter Cushing's Doctor Who um, engaging, uh, and I, I like watching what he's doing with it, and it does travel. But I think, um, yeah, I'm going to give it four out of five, because for the first one, the, as I say, the first one's the one I'll always go to. Now, I, It's something that I've always wondered about why he's absent for so for so much of it why the doctor seems to vanish when i do feel that he, he is a, a straight arrow through the through the first film and as much as i like the rest that scene with the two with the crones that even now when i watch that that scared the hell out of me when i was when i was oh. a child the idea that these two women these two you know maternal figures really could could offer you food and shelter and then turn out to be uh, out for themselves and so easily so easily brought in, in league with the Daleks. It, it just chills me just thinking about it. And, and Sheila Stiefel and Eileen Way, both, both those actresses, both those actresses are always, always good in everything. And, and they've just got those kind of, I, sorry, ladies, I know you're both no longer with us. They're both quite hatchet faced. I just think it's, it's great. Uh, but I, I know exactly what you mean. Charlotte, how many flying saucers out of five do you give this movie? Um, I, I think 
I was impressed when I first saw it with the effects, like the model shots and like we said, the the, the stages and the the feel of just this is bigger, this is if Dot Two had a bit more money, probably a lot more money even being honest behind it, this is what we could maybe get. So that's really good. I really like the dynamic of the Doctor, um, Louise and Susan and then Tommy, I think he's he's they they mesh really well together, and it's a very quick introduction, but they just fit like within two minutes. It's incredible how that they do that. And like I said, I really like how the Daleks are so imposing. I think Daleks have to be imposing. You can't weaken their threat, and this movie gets that. But I do agree with JT. There is a bit in the middle, and the, my possible reason is I think it's because there's a big chunk where they are very separated, the characters. Whereas with, with, with the classic show, you would get that, but it felt like very sort of, um, they would come back together at the right time. There's more, the there's more shape to it because of the nature of the episodic storytelling and the cliffhangers over an extended period, you think? Yeah, it, it just felt like they were a bit more natural lengths of being separated and coming yeah. back. Whereas because this is a movie script and it's bigger sort of yeah. story and everything, they're, they're a lot more separate and I just think maybe that's what I don't re that's maybe why I start to lose it a little bit but in then... a film of only 80 minutes it's it's quite a lot to have your characters separated for the for the vast majority of it I think particularly yeah. when it comes to Doctor Who and Susan but you have to remember that in the original TV version poor Bill Hartnell got hurt uh, when yeah. they were sort of loading them and he was absent for one of the episodes but that's i think like i said because you've got six parter and you've only got like yeah. half an hour possibly of not having bill in an episode mm -hmm. it didn't feel like it was such a oh god he's not been in the story for so long nope. once you get them all back together like with the, with the um mines and trying to get to the center of the earth again it really quickly picks, it picks itself up back up. It, does, it really does doesn't it charlotte i agree with that yeah you're sort of back in the story again aren't you this film of the two when i was growing up was was always my favorite i think it was because it was the first one i saw i had mm. it on video for a good couple of years before i saw the first film so i knew it inside out even then mm. and obviously ever since i bought it several times over actually for all the things that are great about this i actually like it less than i used to and oh. I'd, I'd give it four flying saucers out of five oh. as well as we said before it's, you know, it's really efficient and it's it's got this sort of pace to it and it's really really bold and it's it's um strident in in its in its ideas and its production and there's so much to see and so much going on yet i do feel as i've said just said to you jt i think that the absence of peter cushing at key moments and that separation that you talked about charlotte i do think it kind of hurts it i think it hurts the the shape of it as a as a screenplay as a story in its own right i think some of its strengths the fact that they that they are on location more that's great it's welcome it's absolutely what should have happened but i think it's also some of its weaknesses too there's no real effort made to make it look that far into the future so i think this is the one that's this is the one that, it's not necessarily a worse film than it was 20 30 years ago when i first saw it i just think it's not aging as well as mm. doctor who and the daleks mm. somehow i think most of it is judged really really well i love that it's quite dank and depressing and that it's not so safe as the first one i, I love that too yes i i have to i'm going to give this four flying saucers out of five reluctantly because i can't give maximum scores to to absolutely everything but the good news is 
it's always worth a rewatch. It always makes a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I, I kind of wish it ever got another 10 minutes of runtime. I think that could have helped it too. It's, it's 82 minutes long. I think they could have been longer, particularly with that bigger budget. I would probably have put more of it there than maybe in some of the more lavish elements of the production. I don't know. But it does contain lots of iconic moments, some great performances, genuine spectacle. And just like the first one, it is lots and lots of fun. And you said, JT, about the fact that Dalek Mania was sort of dying off and there was an inevitability to that. Still love to have seen a third or fourth one, Ian, and I'd love to see that Dalek Master Plan film. It's been a, a blast. It's been a, a blast of smoke this time, everybody. My thanks again to Ian McLaughlin, to Hi. Peter Benassi, to JT, and to Charlotte Shields. We'll catch you again with more Dalek talk very soon. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our fandom flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast. We cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Letha Mullet, an action film podcast covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Letha Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show. Our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU Podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. Just head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll soon be met with a delightful site, a store full of all of the team colors for all of the shows on everything from T-shirts to phone cases and tapestries and everything else. Treat yourself treat your other selves it all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain too i'm back here with with charlotte uh, in the in the glow of our review there of the second of the of the two dalek movies and uh, and that latest physical media release from studio canal that's still available it's a brand new restoration on both blu-ray and 4k and you can get a standard edition and a steel book giant collector's edition with posters and all manner of other things too so there's one to to suit most budgets i think that's probably what they'd say on the shopping channel charlotte anybody basically can have it if they want <laughs> this film and its uh slightly elder brother they're nearly 60 years old themselves aren't they we, here we are on the 60th anniversary year of doctor who 
they'll be clocking up their own anniversary too. There were, there were rumours right the way through the 70s and the 80s that Doctor Who would come back to the cinema. There was the scripts floating around and, and there were bidding rights, touted stars. Do you think it's strange that in all this time in between, the, the decades, do you think it's strange that it hasn't legitimately, properly happened? I think it's also stranger considering back when this was made, those sort of more genre, sort of more geeky things weren't as like we get nowadays. We, we're used to seeing oh. superheroes and these sort of fantastical sci-fi things on big screens now and Doctor Who would lend itself to that brilliantly. So I do find it more from that perspective a bit weird that in modern day we've never had a Doctor Who movie. Maybe that's that old thing with Doctor Who. Maybe it is just a question of time. Maybe if the current era gets big enough and it gets successful enough, Bad Wolf with it having ties to Sony, when if you look back enough, if you understand, oh, yeah. maybe Sony might get an interest in it at one point because they've already got the link with Bad Wolf. You never know. I keep forgetting about Sony since Disney got involved. That's And yet Sony are in certainly the equivalent that, of value i think that disney are financially it's well, just they haven't got they haven't got a streaming platform have they sony they, they've got a big studio no, but sony's been making some really fan-pleasing movies in people's estimations so it'd be nice it's because i think doctor who's got such a big premise and such an imaginative premise but as a fan how much debate has these movies caused as to what's canon i know they have tried in last recent years to try and like sort out where these sit but there's still fans who still now don't they debate there are and long may that continue i personally think that's all part of the fun and you know i so did ian mclaughlin my thanks to everybody on that review show to to peter to jt and of course to ian delightful company as always there'll be more from ian on a later edition of type 40 a doctor who podcast don't miss that or anything else that we've got lined up during this 60th anniversary year. You can find it all wherever you found this. Could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40 at type40.podbean.com. Maybe we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbay. We're all over the place. Amazon Music, we're everywhere. We're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's Master Feed. Loaded up with so many treats for your ears. Never mind on the weekly. They're coming at you on the daily there over at the Fandom Podcast Network. So please consider a trip sideways in time to get those quality shows from the, from the FPN. Maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this. You can. You can reach out to us through our social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Type40DoctorWho. Or you can email us, Type40DoctorWho, at gmail.com. If you're feeling particularly brave, <laughs> you can go and find the Type 40 Facebook group, compare your memories about the classic series, about the new series, and speculate about all new Doctor Who going forward. And whilst you're at it, you could even ask them of the, of the two Doctor Who movies from the 60s, which is your favourite. I still struggle to decide, Charlotte. I think I've made some bold claims in both of these review shows, but which I think is better. But you know what? All this time on, I'd probably revise the scores of both of them. It seems to change. It seems to change constantly. Yeah, that wraps it up for this one. The 60th anniversary year has so much left to, to offer with a lot of it still under wraps, Charlotte. It is getting a little frustrating, isn't it? But I'm hanging in there. How about you? I've been grumbling quite a bit recently about this. <laughs> I just 
I understand if they want to keep the actual special under wraps. It's frustrating the way they're doing it, but I understand it. The show being 60 should be celebrated. And I just feel the BBC completely not trying at this point. It feels like for the 50th, we had proper, like special programming, didn't we? We had, we had lots of these extra little things. We've got nothing at the moment. I'm hoping We're the BBC announce. We're living on fumes again, Charlotte. I don't like it. They definitely need to step it up. And uh, <laughs> if people want to hear more of, a, more of us moaning and complaining, where can, where can they do that? Where can they hear more from you? So you can hear me on Type 40 Live, our live show, and on the podcasts. And I don't really do Twitter and social media, but I am part of the Type 40 Facebook group. Yeah, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as The Space Book, where I'm wheezing and groaning, ranting and raving about all things geeky, inside and outside of the TARDIS, in movies, comic books, TV, and whatever else takes my fancy. I seem to be stuck permanently in the early 80s at the moment. Everything I see and share or retweet, it's always oh, it's Depeche Mode from 1982. <laughs> yeah, I'll share that. I don't know. I'm stuck in a time warp. I think I need need shaking shaking up. I need bringing into 2023 myself. So all, all it really needs is, is one proper, proper trailer. Maybe we'll get it at, at uh, Comic-Con 2023. Oh, just, just, just a big announcement, which actually is going to get people excited. <laughs> something. They've got to do something. Bring us bring us the good stuff. Let us know what you think of all of this. Your thoughts about Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. Which is your favourite of the two Dalek movies? And uh, yeah, pick up on some of the threads, some of the amazing content and observations there from Ian McLachlan all the way back there in the in the early 60s, seeing these, seeing these when he was a little boy, or any of us on the panel who've been explaining our special connection to this unique take on a TV legend. Thanks again, Charlotte, for stepping in for this one. And our thanks to you for listening. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, we'll speak to you all again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.